Okay, so. And then you'll get reborn. So that'll be good. As jams now. Yes. I hope so. But so he's probably dead now, too. <laughs> he's not that old. 1956? How old is his nephew? He was born in 1956, right? I mean, he doesn't exist. But if he existed, yeah, he'd be 55 to 56. Um, okay, let's go to section V. What we're going to do is um, try to relatively quickly get through the rest of the poem. Um, and we're going to fail, of course, but we're going to do what we can. Um, so section V is um, Venice. That is that um, DJ and JM have gone off their separate ways. Um, for um, just daily life reasons, it's not that they're separating or parting, not yet at any rate. Um, but they're going off their separate ways, DJ to the west, JM um, stopping in Venice on his way home. And so we get to section V, the Venetian section, and um, we get a quotation from Proust. People recall who Proust is? Who? Yeah, oh, me. who? He yeah. uh, wrote one super long book, and that was it. <laughs> um, he actually wrote more, but he's he famous did? for one. Yeah, he did. His life's work was kind of that one. Yeah, it, um, In Search of Lost Time. Um, and uh, J.M. wrote his senior thesis on him at Amherst. Um, and we already looked at that moment earlier where he thinks that it's too quick, that foreshortening in Proust. Um, where suddenly you get old and the reader doesn't know whether 10 or 40 years have passed. That's what happens at the end of In Search of Lost Time. Um, Proust is, we will later find, um, a great genius, um, who is a great prophet throned on high, rather. We'll find that on the next page. Um, Merrill summarized Proust in a little poem called For Proust as saying that every wish you ever want gets granted, but only this, no, this is a poem called Proust's Law. Um, every wish you ever want gets granted, but only when you no longer want it. Um, that's essentially what happens over and over again in Proust. He also has a great one-line summary of Proust. It's not the present, but the thought that counts, um, which is how Merrill would channel Proust. Okay, Venice Pavan Nirvana Vice wrote Proust justly in his day. That is, Venice would be a place of dancing, of some kind of paradise, and certainly of vice, too. Proust actually never wrote that. Um, it's J.M., um, who's been doing this a lot. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but in the, in the later letters, the crucial letters um, are not the ones that start the various sections. Um, that is, section U starts with the word U, but in fact, it's the unconscious that's the crucial U word in section U. So U begins, you are so quick, Meshia, but then at the very end, we get Jung says, or if he doesn't, all but does, that God and the unconscious are one. Um, section T doesn't really seem to be the letter the, um, but to have um, all sorts of other things to do beside, um, with it besides that. Okay, so here are all these V's. Venise, French for Venice. Pavan, a kind of dance. Nirvana, paradise. Vice, 
which you'll learn about when you're older, wrote Proust justly in his day. But in ours, the monumental eye of stone, on top an adolescent and a slain crocodile, both guano white, each visit stands for less. So he goes to Venice, he sees what he's always seen before, um, this column, the adolescent, the slain dragon, which he talks of as a slain crocodile. Each visit stands for less. And from the crest of the Academia Bridge, the, is that thunder? Palaces seem empty lit display rooms for glass companies. So he's bored with Venice. He's going to Venice again. He goes to the Academia Bridge. Anyone know what that is? Anyone know what the Academia is? Um, I don't think it's by the university. Um, it's the Academia in Venice. It's actually a smallish bridge, and the Academia in Venice is the uh, is their equivalent of the MFA. That is, it's the great art museum in Venice. What the Uffizi is to Florence, um, what the Louvre is to Paris, the Academia is to Venice. It's smaller, but what it has in it in particular, among a lot of other um, amazing paper paintings, is um, Giorgione's La Tempesta. Um, so um, I actually visited it once, and um, we kind of piggybacked on an English language tour, which um, had a lot of very wealthy Americans. And uh, so this the the guide was saying in accented English, you know, and here is La Tempesta, one of the greatest paintings of all time, certainly the greatest painting in this museum, maybe the greatest painting in the world. Um, and this, um, you then hold an auction. <laughs> well, this Texan basically said, well, how much it would it be worth? And she said, well, it's priceless. And he said, yeah, but if you had to price it, what would it be? And she said, we would never even think about pricing it. It's priceless. And he says, well, the Van Gogh was just sold for $72 million. Would this get more? And she said, well, yes. Um, and he said, more than $72 million. Wow, i got to see this. <laughs> so he was looking at money. Um, it's um, like the Mona Lisa. It's covered with um, uh, bullet, bulletproof plastic, which is part of um, what JM is going to um, discuss here. Um, so he, from the crest of the bridge near the Academia, the palaces seem empty lit display rooms for glass companies. Hold still breathes the canal, but then it stirs, ruining another batch of images. So it's a really hot, oppressive day. That's what we can get from this. That is, you can hear thunder in the background, but it's that kind of heat thunder. Um, it's hot. It's oppressive. The canal, which is already kind of mephitic, um, that's one of the problems with Venice, is um, completely still. But then it stirs, ruining another batch of images. Um, Images reflected now in the canal, not in Long Island Sound, not in the lake um, that we saw in Purgatory, Oklahoma, um, but the images of the canal in Venice. Um, Alito Leden. Leto is the bridge on, excuse me, is the beach on the Adriatic um, in Venice. Alito Leden, a whole heavenly city sinking. Titanic ego. Muscle blew a bulge in gleaming nets of nerve of pressures unregistered by the barometer stuck between show and showers, or between show and showers. Um, remember that Ephraim's revelations are pure show and tell. 
But here we have, we don't know. Is it between show and showers or show and showers? Why not show and showers? That would make the most audio sense. Because the barometer's needle would be something that you're looking at with your eyes. And it would be a little bit like the cup. That is, it's a pointer. And what's it pointing to? The future. And what's the future? It's either reading it, it's show and showers. Um, that is, something will show or something will... Um, rain on our parade, rain cats and dogs. But on the actual um, dial, what you would have is the needle right somewhere between, let's say, the W and the E, between show and showers, between show and showers. Um, whose once fabled denizens, Santofior and Guggenheim, anyone know who Guggenheim is? Who? Yeah, so in... In Venice, Peggy Guggenheim was a patron of the arts. Um, she was she died only like five or ten years ago, um, very old age. Um, but she lived in Venice and um, had wild parties in her youth and um, sex with everyone um, that you would want to you would want to notch into your lipstick case. Oh. Um, and. Um, uh, was a huge and, and giant and dynamic patron of the arts. And the Venice Biennial, which is a <coughs> biannual art festival there, um, she was um, heavily involved in. It still, it still occurs. Um, I mean, it's still a major art festival. So whose once fabled denizen, Santo Fior, who's fictional, and as you know, that's the Marquesa Santo Fior, um, who starts out as Mrs. Smith or Mrs. Myth, um, and where we get the word Sandover, um, and Guggenheim, historical garbage in the Marxist phrase, invisibly to all but their valets, still through the dull red mazes caked with slime, bearing some scented drivel of undying love and regret, are dying. So they're thinking of themselves as belonging to a fantastic historical, cultural place, undying love and regret, but they are dying. And high time, the wooden bridge, feeling their tread no longer grumbles, per me va la gente nova. Anyone know what that means? Yeah. Across me, uh, go new people. Right, and it's from Dante. So new people are crossing me now. Gente nova, new people. A population explosion of the greatest magnitude and brilliance. So he picks up the word nova, as in supernova population explosion. Um, more and more people, fewer and fewer souls to populate them. That's part of the imagery here. Who are these thousands? And then this is where this section becomes incredibly beautiful. Who are these thousands entering the dark arc of the moment, two by two? So what arc is that a reference to? Noah's Ark, entering two by two. Who are these thousands entering the dark arc of the moment, two by two? And these are the people who are crossing the bridge, La Genta Nova, the people crossing the bridge to or from the museum. Hurriedly, as by hazard paired, some pausing on the bridge for a last picture, touching, strange, if either is the word, this need of theirs to be forever smiling holding still for the other, the companion, focusing through tiny frames of anxiousness. 
there. Come. So he's watching. He's alone on the bridge, watching all these couples who stop on the bridge to have their pictures taken, to take each other's picture. Touching, strange, if either is the word. He's not sure. This need of theirs to be forever smiling, holding still. Remember, hold still breathes the canal. About eight lines from the start. Now they are holding still for the other. The companion focusing through tiny frames of anxiousness, that is focusing the camera. Used to be you had to do it yourself back in the days of film. Um, and in the days of film, the way you developed films, do people know how film is developed? How? Um, <clears throat> well, there's a dark room, and you have to um, you have to enlarge the the actual negatives um, and blow them up onto uh, glossy photo paper, and then you use uh, chemicals. I'm not sure exactly. What the chemicals yeah, that's are. the chemical. So there's there's basically a bath of three chemicals that you use. So the first chemical brings out the latent image. So you put you put pictures in little little um, uh, baths of water little flat-bottomed um, uh, quarter-inch or half-inch deep um, baths of water. Um, and you time how long. You do this all in the dark. Um, in movies, dark rooms always have red light showing. In real dark rooms, you don't have that. Um, because they're Not if you're trying to do... The, it'll, it, you have lights. They're usually like orange. Yeah, but it'll, it, it'll still... Yeah, it'll still, but no, nothing like the light in movies. But even then, if you can do it in pure dark, you should. Um, even that light will will affect the picture. Um, so, um, but basically, you do a bath of the um, of the photo, then you put it into a bath that fixes what's now been developed, and then you um, put it into something called a stop bath, which. You do the stop bath first. Yeah, the stop, the so he, explain stop. it. Why do you let him explain it? Go ahead. <laughs> like what? What else? All right, you put fine. It in a developer and then in a fix, in a stop to stop the developing, and then you put it in a fix so that the image will stay on the paper, and then you put it in water for a while to get all the chemicals off, and then you and then you it. hang it up. Yeah. All right, cool. It's been a long time. Um, how do you know this? I took the classes. Uh huh. So and they do you it this old-fashioned way. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, so the canal stirring and ruining another batch of images is also a reference to that kind of chemical, um, mephitic, as I said, um, sense of chemical baths everywhere, um, the kind of thing that will blow our coat to smithereens. But here they are. Um, the cameras are focusing um, by hand through tiny frames of anxiousness. The picture is taken. There come. Some have come from admiring. Others are hurrying to sit out the storm, which is coming. Remember, is that thunder? So here comes a storm, and they're hurrying to sit it out in the presence of Giorgione's Tempesta. Um, so that's the painting we looked at last time at the beginning of class. On the surface, nothing less than earthly life in all its mystery. So that's another great line. It's like not on the surface. It just seems to be, you know, um, a silly little painting, but if you look really deep into it, you can see that it's full of symbolism and so on. What he's saying is, no, on the surface, it's nothing less than earthly life in all its mystery. 
reaching the surface. That's the hard thing. That's what he's been saying in section A from the very start, that what he wanted was um, characters, human and otherwise, who you could find in legends, fairy tales, a tone licked clean over the centuries by mild old tongues, grandam to cub, serene, anonymous. So what he wanted, what he wanted to write about, what he wants to somehow find his way to is not the depths and the brilliances and the strange thematic philosophies of even the Book of Ephraim, but just the surface where love is just occurring, where being, where human companionship is just occurring the way it does. On the surface, nothing less than earthly life and all its mystery. Um, man, woman, child. That's earthly life and all its mystery. So being gay, being rich, being well-educated, being elite, all of those things which distinguishes him and DJ from these untamed dead, the kind of people that Ephraim is judging at a glance, if you go back to section, um, to the last page of section E. Um, Ephraim, at the, in the last paragraph of E, Ephraim had resumed his volunteer work in that dimension we could neither visualize nor keep from trying to. For instance, this March noon, as a fog-swept, milk-misty, opal-fiery induction center, where even while our bowl is kept suavely rolling, he and his staff judge at a glance the human jetsam. Each new wave washes their way. War, famine, revolution. Each morning's multitude, the tough tendril of unquestioning love alone, ties to dust, a strewn ancestral flesh. Yet we whose last ties loosened, snapped like thread, weren't we less noble than these untamed dead? Old falcon-featured men, young skin-and-bone grandmothers, claw raised against the flash, night creatures frightened headlong by a bare bright stage into the next vein-tangled snare. That's what the human body is, a vein-tangled snare. So that's everyone. Those are people who are not, to quote King Lear, sophisticates. Not, to quote the movie, the aristocrats. Um, people for whom life is struggle, people for whom life is um, a strange desire to live and to reproduce despite all its painfulness. Um, and we, whose last ties loosened, snapped like thread, weren't we less noble than these untamed dead, is what J.M. is asking about himself. Um, he cannot achieve the simplicity of love. He and DJ can't achieve the simplicity of just being together. So here he is at the Academia, and what he sees is this painting, on the surface, nothing less than earthly life in all its mystery, man, woman, child, a place. Shatterproof glass inflicting on it a fleet blur of couples, many of whom by now have reproduced. 
So there's glass over the painting, and of course the glass is reflecting. So you can see both the painting and a blur of couples coming to Venice to see it. Who is Giorgione really? Who is Proust? And Ephraim answers, Above me a great prophet throned on high, said Ephraim of the latter. One sees why. And then he describes what happens at the very end of In Search of Lost Time. Late in his passion come its instruments thick and fast, bell, flagstone, napkin, fork. So if I say Proust Madeline, how many people will that be a familiar phrase to? No one really? Proust, can you say what it is? Or is it, it just, just familiar? Yeah, it's in Proust. I mean, sort of what he explores is this expression of pure happiness that he has at various moments throughout his life. And the first time it happens, it's, it can be the most mundane things that cause it. He takes a cookie, he comes to, he's had a hard day, and he comes to his mom's house. She serves him cookies and tea, and he dips a cookie in his tea and takes a bite. And the moment he takes a bite of it, he has this moment of complete bliss that he doesn't understand at all. And every time, and he takes another bite and another bite, and every time he takes another bite, it gets a little less until there's nothing left of it at all. And he spends, basically he spends his life trying to explore and to, to understand what that, what that feeling is and what he experienced. Yeah, so what happens is that um, it awakens his whole childhood. He hasn't had this taste and smell of the madeleine dipped in tea since he was a little child. And now it's been a cold day. He's home. His mother says, would you like some tea and madeleine? He says no. Then he says, well, okay. Hasn't had this for 30 years or 20 years. Dips the madeleine in the tea, takes a bite, and this gigantic world that he'd totally forgotten is reawakened. Um, we now say that this occurs in the limbic system. Um, and there's, in fact, a book that just came out called Proust was a Neuroscientist. Um, which is uh, supposedly by, by Jonah Lehrer, who's the new it boy for The New Yorker. Um, and the idea is that Proust was just really good at describing um, the experiential um, um, causes and effects of various neurochemical cascades. Um, and um, tasting the madeleine was one of them. But what happens is 3,000 pages later, um, he goes to a party. This is when we don't know if he's 10 or 40 years older. Um, he goes to a party, and um, he hears the bell ring. He trips on a flagstone. Um, he um, feels the texture of a napkin at this party, and he's surprised by the placement of the fork. And all of those things together suddenly again have this huge flood, evoke this huge flood of memories for him. Um, so late in his passion come its instruments thick and fast. Bell, flagstone, napkin, fork. So that is to say, hearing um, proprioception as he, tri as he um, trips on the flagstone. Feeling the napkin, fork, vision. Earlier we had had the madeleine, which is taste and smell. Um, they all come through superhuman counterpoint to work the body's resurrection sense by sense. So he experiences these things and suddenly he's young again. David, Jimmy, I am young again. Here he's young again. He remembers his youth. And now we get some sense of what sense by sense means. Remember that at each level the taken leave of senses return. So that's what happened to Proust. 
And again, we can see how J.M., or his unconscious, or their unconscious, in a sense is rewriting Proust in the Book of Ephraim. That is, it's, where are the dead? They're in your memories. Am I in your room? So are all your dead who have not gone into other bodies. And the senses come back through this intensity of memory. So here's Proust, another great prophet throned on high. But then he says, so what? I've read Proust for the last time. Look to my fillet, the Tempesta, timeless in its fashion, because its title means both the storm and time, timeless in its fashion, as any great epitome of bipeds beeped by a computer into space. What that, what's that about? Anyone know? So it's a slightly wrong reference to the Voyager spacecraft that have pictures of humans. You know, there's a famous picture of two genital, or I guess the guy kind of has genitals, um, holding hands with a woman. And there's also a record of Bach, um, I think on silver, printed on silver, you know, a record like vinyl, except made of silver, and all sorts of things like that. So the Voyager has gone out past the heliopause by now. Um, it's heading towards interstellar space. The idea would be if it's ever found, people will get some sense of human civilization, assuming they have record players and eyes. Um, and um, so he's imagining that SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, um, is also trying to communicate with extraterrestrials in space. Um, sending pictures of human beings, a grid epitome of bipeds beeped by a computer into space. Now that I've read Proust for the last time, give me the alerted vacuum of that black, gold-earringed baby all in white. Maya, Maya, your felicite? Her father focuses upon. So forget Proust. Forget Giorgione. Forget all of this. What do I want? Look at that little baby dressed in white, black gold earring baby dressed in white. Of course that would be, if anyone's representative, that would be Maya's. Remember Maya has a representative now named Felicity because Maya is, that would be the phosphorescent negative into which Maya dips into in her movie. Um, and um, which would have to do with her understanding of voodoo as well. Um, so there he sees a father taking a picture of his daughter. That's what's great. Earth's the right place for love. There, come. There it is again. So there's a picture. Her father takes a picture of her. There, come. One more prompt negative. I thanked my stars when I lost the Leica at Longchamp. What's a Leica? It's a, yeah, it's a finger that goes like that. What's a Leica? Yeah, it's a very, very fancy camera. It's like Leicas are to Nikons what Nikons are to Pentaxes. Um, <laughs> a useless analogy for most of you. Um, I thanked my stars when I lost the Leica at Longchamp. He was glad to lose his camera. Why? Never again to overlook a subject for its image. So if you're a photographer, all you're doing, I mean, all of you with your smartphones know this now. If you're a photographer, you're not looking at stuff. 
you're looking at how to turn it into an image. And that prevents you from seeing the thing itself. Never again, now that he's lost it, to overlook a subject for its image, to labor images till they yield a subject. Dram of essence from the flowering field. That is getting just the essence of perfume, the dram of the essence from flowers, which we would call the what of the rose? Essence. Essence or adder. Yeah, time, the very adder of the rose was running out. Never again to overlook a subject for its image, to labor images till they yield a subject, dram of essence from the flowering field. No further need henceforth of this receipt, gloom coupled with artifice for holding still, for being held still. Receipt there means spell, literally recipe, but it's a kind of archaic word in English for spell. It's what Dr. Faustus uses. Um, so I no longer need that, the camera, for holding still, for being held still, being held still by the person you love, but only through images, through a camera, through a mirror, as though somehow they can't just be together. No. Besides, I fly tomorrow to New York, never again. Pictures and little pieces torn from me where lightning strikes the set and now the storm comes. Gust of sustaining timbers, creosote, pungency, the abrupt drench releases. So now the timbers holding Venice up, you may know, are made of wood. That's why Venice is sinking. Um, the storm makes you smell a little bit. They're creosote where they've been charred by previous storms. There again is that elemental sea, that elemental carbon, which is the black rock of burning organic matter cold, hissing white, the old man of the sea who clung to now must truthfully reply. What is that a reference to? What old man of the sea has to reply truthfully if you hold on to him long enough? What Greek epic is that a reference to? Odysseus. Okay, Odysseus. It's not actually Odysseus who holds the old man of the sea, but who is the old man of the sea? It's Menelaus who has to. Anyone, anyone take English 10? Or Hume 10 a Tisk tisk. Well, next year. Um, Proteus. So Proteus, if you know the word protean, that is something that's always changing shape. Proteus is a god who Menelaus is told if you wrestle him down and don't let all his shape shifting throw you off, eventually he will take his own form and answer your questions. So when we talk about the protean nature of the um, threat from Al-Qaeda. It means it's constantly shifting or changing. That word protean comes from the Greek god Proteus. Yeah? I, I might be wrong. Is, it, is that the same person that Odysseus does go to when he's trying to get home and like he does end up speaking to people from the world? And yeah, no, it's not Proteus. When he, when he goes to the underworld, he's led there... Um, believe he's led there by Athena. Um, but Proteus doesn't help him into the underworld. Now, a lot of people remember Odysseus with Proteus, but it's actually Menelaus who's telling Telemachus um, how he, what he knew and how he learned it. Um, so... Um, yeah, it seems like an image for like a lot of things in the book. Yeah, exactly. 
So he must truthfully reply, bellying shirt, sheer windbag wrung to high relief to needle keen transparency. There again we have the um, barometer, air and water blown glass hard, because Venice is where glass blowing is one of the greatest glass blowing centers in history. Their blind man's buff with unsurrendering goose flesh streamlined from conception, crack, boom, flash. So he's doing the storm here. We won't slow down to tease all of the meanings out. Glaze soaking inward as it came to mind. How anybody's monster breathing flames vitrified in metamorphosis to monstrous clouded then like a blown fuse, if not a reliquary for St. James's vision of life. Um, just quickly, this is really hard, and um, and I want to repeat because some of you have emailed me about this. This is a hard poem. No one has um, has annotated it completely yet. Um, there is um, there are lots of articles on it which you shouldn't read. Many of them are wrong. Um, there's a book called A Reader's Guide to the Changing Light at Sandover, which is an amazing. Um, work of evasion and avoidance uh, <laughs> because whenever the writer doesn't understand something he treats it as though it's obvious um, his name is Robert Polito and if he doesn't understand it he says oh yes and then there's the blah 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 um, and he just goes right past it so you know he like writes papers the way you do it's amazing um, you plural the way we all do have that <laughs> um, and um, where we are, where you all are, I think where we all are, is that it's really rare to get a work like this that you know doesn't have any standard bullshit in it. That is, that there's no place in this work where Merrill is being lazy. You can be confident of that, right? Yes. Yes. 20 years to write it. Yeah. Um, but, where we, but where it hasn't all been figured out either. So that's pretty rare. You know, I mean, Paradise Lost, everyone has a theory about every single crux in Paradise Lost. They may be wrong, but um, there isn't a line in Paradise Lost that people are saying, I don't really get this, but next time maybe I will. Um, uh, Shakespeare, Melville, um, you know, if you, or Hawthorne, if you take um, those sorts of writers who have really thought hard about every word, but a lot of it is still really obscure, all that obscurity at least has gotten some kind of tentative guesses at meaning. Um, and a lot of those come together. Ulysses is the great example of this, James Joyce's Ulysses. Um, Merrill, the Book of Ephraim, the whole Changing Light at Sandover, but really the Book of Ephraim, we're in a place where um, you guys will see and think new thoughts about it. And we'll see things that other people haven't um, in the Book of Ephraim. Um, it's a really valuable thing to see a work um, that has all the power and content and depth and difficulty of a certain kind of classic that hasn't become a classic yet, partly because there isn't even finished, there isn't a tentative um, version of its genome has not yet been sequenced. A lot of it has, but not all of it has. Um, so the work we're doing on this poem um, is work which has actually um, not been done, some of it. Some of it has, some of it hasn't. Um, and that's a really cool thing. That's a great thing. That's, um, 
knowing what it's like to experience a literary work that has not yet been fully experienced by anyone, um, except perhaps its writer. So, but what to notice here then is that the dragon of Venice, that is the boy with the crocodile, um, becomes vitrified in metamorphosis. Um, that is this whole idea of Venice as the place of glass. Remember the glass factories. Um, how anybody's monster, breathing flames, vitrified in metamorphosis, to monstrance, clouded then like a blown fuse. Do people know about fuses? Old-style fuses, the kind you screw in? Um, they have them in dark rooms in case the safe light blows when you're developing film from your Leica. Um, fuses, you now use circuit breakers, you use fuses that you can't tell are blown, but it used to be they're these, they're, um, they're about the size of a quarter, you screw them in, if too much current goes through them, they melt down, they fuse, and um, they leave a kind of black ash on the glass on top. Um, so you can actually see that the fuse is blown. Um, so, um, and they become clouded then like a blown fuse. If not a reliquary for St. James's vision of life, St. James, of course, is this James as well. How Venice, her least stone, pure menace at the heart. So Venice had started as pure menace, at length became a widow, fiery mild who's walked through frame everything else at sunset hinged upon. In my version, it's pure menace at the start. Um, oh, what did I, oh, I, I read at the heart. No, you're right, at the start. Thank you. Um, it was just me misreading. Um, at length became a window, fiery mild, who's walked through frame everything else at sunset hinged upon. When? And so W is not the book of when, but the book of Wendell. So there again, it's a kind of false first letter. It's not the crucial word in W is not when, but Wendell. So here comes Wendell. Um, the form here is what? Do people know? Of section W? It's not, it's, yeah, there's a specific name for this form. Notice that it's rhymed A, B, A, and then what happens to the fourth line? Yeah, so do you know what that's called? Um, Shelley did that in the Ode to the West Wind, among other places, also uh, most famously in The Triumph of Life. And Shelley, Shelley got it from the inventor of the form. Shakespeare. No, Dante. Terza Rima, it's called. It's a very difficult form in English. It's difficult enough in Italian. It's more difficult in English, yeah. T-E-R-Z-A, terza, R-I-M-A. So it's a triple rhyme, every line, with a slight exception to this rule, but every line is rhymed three times. So you get calm, stairs, come, that's the first rhyme, is calm and come. Then stairs picks up hairs and compares. The middle line blue, then goes to who and to, Names goes to James and counterclaims. Do you see that? So it's, there's a kind of slotting where each middle line then becomes the outer rhymes of the next stanza. So each stanza is kind of slotted, oh, I don't know, like DNA, into the next. Each rhyme implies a base pair 
um, but the base pair also gets you to the next base pair. Um, connects upwards in a kind of double helical motion to the next base Where's pair. the third A rhyme? There is no third A rhyme. Okay. It's got to start with only two rhymes. Okay. And in Dante, it will end with only, um, with a single last line. In Shelley, it ends with a couple, so, uh, with a couplet. So starting and ending terza rima are iffy. What some people will do is put the third A rhyme at the very end of the poem. Um, or at the very end of the stanza, so that you circle round and then you get a braid. Um, but once you're in it, you're in it. So here comes Wendell. When in the flashing pink and golden calm appears a youth to mount the bridge's stairs, his pack and staff betoken those who come from far off as do sunburned forehead, hair's long thicket, merman blonde, the sparkling blue gaze which remembrance deep in mind compares with one met in some other seer, but who, where, when, Dumbly, I call up settings, names, the pilgrim ever nearer, till we two cry out together, Wendell, Uncle James! So he basically doesn't recognize him, but he realizes he sort of does, and suddenly they recognize each other. It's Betsy's child, whom I last saw. Life passes in a mirage of claims and counterclaims when he was six or seven. So remember that we've been at sixes or sevens earlier. Um, different levels, six and seven are crucial. He confesses he knew me only from a photograph, as any stranger with an eye for faces might have done, faces being, shy laugh, what draw him and vice versa. What's the vice versa? He draws faces, yeah. Um, so he shows J.M. Um, all the drawings he's done. This is at the bottom of the next page. He proffers a sketchbook for me to leaf through, portraits mostly, page by page. My pleasure in the pains he took increases, yet pain, panic, and old age afflict his subjects horribly. They lie on pillows peering out as from a cage, feeble or angry, long tooth, beady eye. Some few are young, but he has picked ill-knit, mean-mouthed, distrustful ones. When I ask why, and then this great, amazing line, why with a rendering so exquisite? I guess that's sort of how I see mankind, says Wendell, doomed, sick, selfish, dumb as shit. So what do, what do we think of that rhyme? Exquisite and shit. It's pretty great. Um, so here's Wendell, who, again, lives on the surface. Um, he's on the verge of the same kind of elitism as his uncle. Um, that is contempt for the rest of mankind. But that his uncle is somehow starting finally to overcome. But still, the word exquisite belongs to J.M. The word shit belongs to Wendell. So he takes him all around. He shows him all of Venice. Um, and then Wendell somehow disappears while they're drunk. And he realizes, oh, no, I'd forgotten who Wendell was, Ephraim's representative. He is an angel. He has dreamed of me, says Ephraim. But now he's gone. Then we get X, which is, um, your version doesn't say so, and I'm not sure why, but the original Divine Comedies version points out that in the, on the copyright page that in the Book of Ephraim, the opening of Section X draws heavily upon an article by Nancy Thomas de Grumont, Giorgione's Tempest, The Legend of St. Theodore, published in L'Arte 20. Um, so 
what he says in section X about x-rays of La Tempesta, all of that is um, from an article. That is, if you were to x-ray it and go beneath the surface of earthly life and all its mysteries, would you learn more or less? In a way, that's the question. Let's just look at why. This will be what we end with. Years have gone by, so it's now almost the end of the year. Remember, the at zero hour, the furnace, this time in Stonington, is going to go out. They call Bob the furnace man to come fix it, um, which means they now have a telephone. If nothing else, it means they now have a telephone. Years have gone by. How often in their course I've done bit for people bits of this story. So we looked at some of this. Um, did I want any of that? No. Much less awed and searingly gentle grimace of impatience with Falderall. His dogma substantial, rooted like a social tooth in some great Philistine-destroying jaw. During one of our last conversations, Wiston had just died. So during one of our last conversations, he just died. During one of our last conversations, Wiston had just died. Um, we got through to him. He sounded pleased with his new prole body and likened heaven to a new machine. But a gust of mortal anxiety blew. His speech guttered. There were papers. Yes, a box in Oxford that must quickly be quickly burned. Breaking off, he'd overstepped, been told so. Then the same mechanical kind preoccupied good night that ended one's evenings with the dear man. Our turn now to be preoccupied. Whiston had merged briefly with Tiberius that first night, urging destruction of a manuscript. Remember? Buried beneath a red stone at the Empire's heart. So that's the box in Capri. And in the final analysis, who didn't have at heart both a buried book and a voice that said, destroy it. So that's the interpretation that we all have in our own hearts, a buried book of our longings, of our past, of our desires, of what we hoped we would be and didn't become. How sensible had we been to dig up this material of ours? But then there's another question. What if burn the box had been demotic? Demotic means the common speech. What if burn the box had been demotic for children while you can? Let some last flame coat these walls. The lives you lived, relive them. So what if that's what burn the box means? Remember the coat of flame, a witty shade, now watermelon, now sunburn? But what if burn the box, which is the very first thing they hear, practically, from Ephraim, is relive your lives? Don't give up on your past. While you can, renew your commitment to what most matters to you, to love and art, to quote Tosca earlier. Let's just go quickly. I mean, I think that's, in a sense, the moral, the most beautiful moment of the moral of the Book of Ephraim. Children, while you can, let some last flame coat these walls. The lives you lived, relive them. Then to... Section Z, they look at these old love letters from another world. And, um, and again, this is the second page of Section G, Section Z. Again at nine sharp, yeah. Are these love letters their dictations? Yeah, yes. Yeah, that any day says um, DJ, it's them where the piano says DJ. So all these manuscripts 
the clock rings, the phone rings at nine. It's Bob the Furnace Man. He's on his way. We'll find, if not an easy to repair short circuit, that is a blown fuse, then the failure long foreseen as total of our period machine. Um, so period machine means an old furnace from a different period. It's like a period piece in, in antiques. Um, so it's as though this machine is from long ago, but what you want to say, Isabel, is? Okay, a period machine, um, remember, um, the failure of the machine would be maybe the failure of their loves. A period machine is also a machine for producing periods. What a period is technically is not the punctuation mark, but the thing the punctuation mark ends. A period is an older name for what we would now call a sentence or a clause. Um, so it could be the failure of their machine for producing quasi-grammatical constructions, um, which is the failure of their love, because our summer is not working. He keeps complaining. He means to say furnace. He says summer. Now the furnace is on the blink, and it may mean forever. What kept them warm, what kept them together, may be gone forever. So it's the dim wish of lives to drift apart. Um, the ancient ageless woman of the world we finally get at the end. She's, she's seen us. She is not particular. Everyone gets her injured musical. Why do you no longer come to me? To which there's no reply for here we are. That's like Miranda. She also, now she's seen me. Now she, or rather now she's seen us. Now she goes to Tamerlan and gives him one great open-jawed kiss. Now it's the ancient ageless woman of the world. If you've read Mrs. Dalloway, I think, where is she, Mrs. Dalloway? Here we are. It's the last slide of Mrs. Dalloway. Yes, for there she was. But there's also a woman in Mrs. Dalloway in the park who is singing and who Wolf's narrator calls an ancient ageless woman. Um, it's the world itself. Sorry. So um, we will end with that apology. And... Um,